ultimately to uh, obey and serve with what we read and study tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're looking at uh, week nine here. We're in John 15. We're finishing up John 15. And remember, this is uh, Jesus in his last week. This is uh, uh, the night before his crucifixion. And he has celebrated the uh, Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper. And now we know he's on his way ultimately to the Garden of Gethsemane where he'll be arrested shortly. And on the way, he gives this, he gives this discourse uh, about the vine and the branches. And he uses that to teach about this union he has we ha that he has with his believers and about how we're united to him, we're connected to him. And because we've been born again, regenerated, and we have this new life, that therefore we will produce fruit. And this fruit is, a, is, the, is really the best indication that we have this life. <laughs> you know, if you go look at some plant or something like a vine or a fig uh, grapevine or something, you know it's alive if you see fruit. And uh, so that's what he's saying here uh, to his disciples. So he's talked about that, and now he kind of moves on here a little bit and gives, uh, restates this command about loving one another that he's given actually before. But here it is, uh, and we said, you know, this is, we, we know he's somewhere on, Oh, went off? Okay, let's see what happened here. Okay, let's see. All right, see if we can get that back on here. The funny thing is I see them here, I just don't see them on the screen there. Okay, are we back? Are you got them? I see them here, yeah. Something is weird there. You see how it's showing your... Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Well, I didn't really do anything different here. Use as a separate display, or okay, must have changed. And then you might have to hit us, go back to proclaim and hit escape. Okay. Yeah, right there. And go by off. Uh, off air, just hit off air. Okay, and go back on air. Okay. All right. Good. All right. I guess we had a little internet interruption, huh? So let's look at this uh, verses 12 through 17. I won't rehearse 1 through 11 because of lack of time here. We're getting down to the end of our class. We've got a few chapters to go. So we need to move ahead here probably a little faster. <clears throat> Jesus says in verse 12, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. As I said, we've seen that before. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Uh, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father and have made known to you. You did not 
choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, what do you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So as I say here, Jesus repeats this new commandment that we talked about in John 13, 34, that they should love one another. And the key thing is, just as I have loved you. This time he enlarged upon it and showed how limitless his love really was. The greatest possible sacrifice one can make for a friend is to give up life itself. Jesus was about to do this for believers whom he calls his friends. He did not adopt this terminology lightly, for he explained the difference between a friend and a slave. Friends are those who share each other's confidences. So it was that Jesus Christ had not held back from the disciples anything of the revelation of God that he had been commissioned to bring. Not like a, a master with a slave. Jesus is communicating everything to them. He had revealed the Father's plan for the future and was even now engaged in laying out before them the purposes of his departure and his plans for them during the interval until his return. Nevertheless, he also reminded them that their status as friends was not of their own making. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Rather, his love for them had been so great that he had taken all the initiative. He had chosen them to be his friends and had appointed them as his emissaries and had made provision for the successful accomplishment of their ministries. To be a friend of Jesus is to do what he commands. Remember, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. This obedience is not what makes them friends, but it is what characterizes his friends. This friendship is not strictly reciprocal. That is, Jesus' friends cannot turn around and say, Jesus will be their friend if he does what they say. So don't stone me here now, but uh, let me say something a little controversial here. Uh, technically, neither God nor Jesus is ever referred to in Scripture as the friend of anyone. You probably wouldn't have thought about that, we hadn't noticed that, but this is often pointed out that technically it doesn't say Jesus is our friend or God is our friend. I know, that's why I say don't stone me, what a friend we have in Jesus, you know. Uh, technically, uh, we are God's friends and, um, you know, that's what Abraham is called the friend of God. Moses is called the friend of God. But it's not said vice versa anywhere in Scripture. Uh, when I'm not saying, we're not saying that, that, that God is unfriendly or anything like that, but it's, it's apparently, this is on purpose, preserving sort of the distinction, you know. Uh, um, as we said, um, we're, Je we're friends of Jesus because we do what he says. We, 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 you know, but we, he doesn't do what we say. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a perfectly reciprocal like we have human beings. There's, there's a difference because he's God and we're not. So, uh, I mean, guilty sinners like us have no better friend than Jesus or the Father or the Son. But it's not the modern type of mutual friendship you know, it's not that. That would be a little demeaning to God and so forth. 
So I'm just pointing that out. Many people point that out, that there is that little bit of distinction there. Uh, also, I say here, though we must obey Jesus, we are not slaves, since a slave does not know his master's business. Jesus takes pains to inform his friends of his motives, plans, and purposes. Uh, the words here are no longer, I no longer call you servants, probably points to the difference between believers in the Old Testament and believers in the New Testament. Um, the Old Testament saints were not really informed of God's saving plan in the full measure that Jesus explains it to his disciples. He's explaining everything, what God is doing and so forth. God didn't give that full of revelation in times gone past. Um, now, later he'll say, uh, you're not able to grasp all of this at the present time. He'll say in chapter 16, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Remember, we've talked about this problem. He's been telling them a lot of stuff. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise the third day. They still can't quite fathom that. How does that work in with the Messiah and all that? And, you know, all, all the things that, that are coming in the future. And we've talked about it. That's why he's sending the Holy Spirit with this apostolic anointing and so forth. And so the Holy Spirit, remember we looked at John 14, 16, and we'll see John 16, 13 in a moment, uh, indicate that, you know, I will show you things to come. You'll remember what I said. So, um, so Jesus is sharing all these things with his friends, not because they chose him, but because he chose them. Just like that, it's true for us. He chose us. Uh, if he wouldn't have chose us, we wouldn't have chosen him. I say here, so Jesus explained that his friends will carry out his directives. And the particular command emphasized here was to love one another. By letting their Christian love for one another flourish unhindered, they would be producing the spiritual fruit that the Holy Spirit was sent to accomplish among them. We think of, you know, Paul will say in Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the Spirit, love, and would be offering a, a, a clear testimony to the world of their identification with Christ. Well, then we see uh, the hatred of the world against the disciples. First, we see the description of the world's hatred in verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So I say the purpose of this verse is to eliminate the surprise factor when persecution does break out. As John will later say, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. And he tells us that in 1 John. Although the relation of the disciples to Christ would produce in them a love for one another, the world of unbelievers would not understand or appreciate them. In fact, the world would react with the same hatred that it meted out to Christ. And so the ultimate reason why that uh, the world hated Jesus. The ultimate reason for the world's hatred of Jesus is because, uh, as we saw back in chapter 7, verse 7, he testifies that their deeds are evil. 
that people aren't ultimately good, they're evil, you know. Um, and Christ's followers, he says, you know, you're, you're going to be hated by the same world partly because you're associated with the one who's supremely hated, Christ, and partly because you're going to be bearers at that same message. Um, I mean, the world is a society of rebels, you know, re rebelling against God, rebelling against His commands, rebelling against His morals, and so forth. Um, and it really finds it hard to tolerate, tolerate those of us who uh, are in allegiance to what God says and what He commands and you know, and so our message is not really acceptable. And, you know, we're seeing that, you know, more and more almost every day. You and I encounter it uh, when you listen to people out in the world <clears throat> um, on the Internet or in a podcast. You, you just hear that constantly that you and I are just at odds with <laughs> the morality, the culture, everything about what the world believes. They just can't believe that people believe what we believe, you know. I, they just can't, they just cannot, that just is just, just crazy. The, you know, our morality is crazy. You know, I was reading some stuff about, you know, the sexual situation and you know, young people and people in the world just can't, could not, they cannot believe that you could say no sex before marriage. That's just an intolerable, impossible, well, it's just a stupid thing to them. Stupid. Wow, that, that's, you know. So you can see that anybody who said would say something like that or even believe that, that one thing would be just, thought to be odd and strange and should not be tolerated. So Jesus is saying that to his disciples and he's saying it to us. So we shouldn't be surprised. And nobody likes that. Everybody wants to be loved. <laughs> Who doesn't? We want to be liked. But it's, unfortunately, it's not always going to be like that. Verse 20, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they will if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So the disciples will be regarded as servants of Christ, and no servant, as he told the disciples, is greater than his master. Disciples cannot expect better treatment than their masters. The picture is not totally black, as Jesus says here, because uh, for Jesus did win some individuals out of the world, and the disciples could expect this result also. You know, if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours. And so... The mass of the world is going to remain unconverted, but thankfully there will people, there are people, as we see, who respond to the message of Christ. They are converted. They are willing, and they have an attitude of acceptance and obeying of what the Bible says and what God commands. So it's not a totally bleak picture, but he's giving us an honest assessment of what we can expect. What's the reason for the world's hatred, 21 through 25? They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. 
It would help the disciples to bear the hatred of the world if they understood its causes. It would not really be directed against them, ultimately, even though they would personally have to suffer. The true reason of this hostility was because of the hatred of Jesus and its ignorance of the Father who had sent him. So when he says, they'll hate you because of my name, that's equivalent to because of me. Um, I mean, the tragedy is they're blindly rejecting, uh, they're blindly rejecting, uh, you know, uh, God without really, you know, they don't know him and they just blindly reject him. They, they reject Christ, who is the one who can reveal God. It's a very, very sad situation, isn't it? Verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. However, whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, as it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. This sounds a little strange, doesn't it, when he says, if I hadn't come and spoken, they wouldn't be guilty. Uh, and if I hadn't done these works, they would not be guilty. You know, I say the seriousness of rejecting Christ is now brought out. Jesus does not mean that the Jews would have been sinless, though it sounds like he's saying that, I admit had he not appeared, but he does mean that the sin of rejecting God as he really is would not have been imputed to them had they not had the revelation of God that was made through him. Now that he, was, now that he has made this revelation, Jesus has, there is greater culpability because Jesus has fully revealed the Father to them. So whether people recognized it or not, Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus' work was nothing less than God's work. Jesus speaking was none. What, what Jesus' speech was God's words. Uh, when he spoke, God was being heard. God was speaking. Uh, when Jesus worked, God was working. Uh, in in Jesus, God was seen. Uh, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. Um, so the, the coming of Jesus revealed in a clearer way the enormity of people's sin. And people naturally resented him for that. Um, I mean, here's all these religious people in Jesus' day, the leaders and the religious people, and uh, they hate him. <laughs> Why, why do they hate him? They think they're righteous and upright and all that, right? But they hate him because he is really revealing their sinfulness. Um, and so because he came, people are without excuse here. They're guilty of the greatest sin, the sin of rejecting God's own son. This is similar to places in the synoptic gospels where, you know, we have these, uh, where people are rebuked for their lack of repentance, and they're said, you're going to face greater judgment than pagan cities like Tyre and Sidon. Remember this passage here. For Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, 
because they did not repent. So, you know, they were guilty before, but now, woe to you, Chorazim, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but I'll tell you, it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the dead judgment than for you. So there are degrees of sin and degrees of punishment. And so it's going to be worse off for these cities that Jesus walked the earth and gave revelation to than it would be for Tyre and Sidon. They didn't have as much truth, as much revelation. And so that seems to be the focus here. Uh, these people are really, they're, you know, the, the people who, who uh, have this revelation, and that includes people today who have the Bible. We have the Bible. You're really, you're really, uh, people who, you know, the more light you have, the greater responsibility you have, right? I mean, so we believe, another, another thing we believe that people <laughs> think we're crazy and reject us is that people who have never heard the gospel are going to die and go to hell. You know, that's just, that's an intolerable... Going to hell is bad enough, but if you never heard the gospel, you'll die and go to hell. That's an intolerable situation for most people. But we do know that people who have heard the gospel are going to have greater accountability and greater punishment because they've had greater light. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I've come, and people really don't have any excuse for their sin now, he says. The Father has revealed Himself completely in the Son, and we see that revelation with the way it's communicated to us is through the Scripture. We have the Scripture. There it is. There is no excuse. People can't say, you know, in that sense, uh, you know, there was no revelation given about God. Verse 25, But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. None of the, the hatred displayed by the world was a surprise to Jesus, and neither can it jeopardize God's redemptive plan. Even his hateful rejection, this hateful rejection serves to fulfill God's word. He's quoting Psalm 69, verse 4, They hated me without reason. So he said, you know, the Jews saw themselves, just one second, the Jews saw themselves as the upholders of, of the law, remember? Uh, but the truth is, their own scripture, the Jews' own scripture, note their law, but this is to fill what is written in their law. The, the law condemned them. They have, uh, they have no uh, justification for their rejection of Christ. Uh, Eula, I'm sorry, what did you say? Going back to what you just said. Yeah. So Yes, I did say. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's the way, that's true. That's true. So she was asking, is it really true that people who have never heard the word are going to hell? And yes, it is. And you say, why would that be? Well, of course, Romans 1 says they do have a revelation. They have the revelation of God in creation, but they reject that. That is, they... They, they know there's a God, they know He's powerful, they know He's the Creator, but it says even though they know God, they reject Him, they turn away, Romans chapter 1. So it's pretty clear that um, you know, unsaved people, um, 
reject. They reject the revelation of God in creation. And, they, and all of us would reject the revelation of the Bible if it wasn't God's uh, spirit you know, working in our hearts and lives and, and, and causing us to be willing to accept it. Remember the 1 Corinthians 2.14, the, the person without the spirit does not accept, doesn't welcome the things that come from the spirit of God. So we... So even though we, even those of us, even people we, who hear the scripture <laughs> are not going to accept it unless there's a work of the Spirit, you know. So that is the, that is the fact. Very hard. It's a hard saying. It's very hard. It is true. There's no question about that. But, of course, most people, you know, most people, if you went out and just did a survey of unsaved people, they would say everybody's going to make it <laughs> some way, shape, or form. They all believe in universalism. Well, if they, believe in, if they believe there's an afterlife, they believe somehow everybody, they may think Hitler's going to hell. You know, okay, Hitler may go, but, but most everybody else will make it somehow, shape, or form, but not the case. Um, ver, uh, see here, the answer to the world's hatred, 15, 26 through 27. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The Spirit of Truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Christ made provision for his disciples to stand against the oppressive forces that would shortly come. His sending of the Holy Spirit would supply the Advocate, because he's the Spirit of Truth. He would enable them to see clearly the world's false position, and would strengthen the disciples for their task and their ordeal of suffering. Through his spiritual strengthening of the disciples, it would be possible for them to give a strong witness to the world. <clears throat> they would be qualified not only because they would possess the Spirit's power, but also because of their personal knowledge of Christ gained during their association with him and during his ministry. So there is an answer for us, too, for the world's hatred. That is, God's not left us alone. We have the indwelling spirit, <clears throat> which enables us to, to understand what's coming at us, <laughs> to be able to accept it, uh, you know, to testify correctly. We understand their reaction. You know, we're not left in the dark. We're not like servants. We're friends, so... We're informed about all that's happening. We cannot be surprised at the rejection that we face and uh, the hatred that we are going to see. D here, a warning against the world's hatred, chapter 16, 1 through 4. All this I've told you so that you will not fall away. Even though Christ had repeatedly told the disciples what the future would hold, another warning was in order for they would still be disturbed when they became the direct object of the world's attack. Christ did not want them to go astray. So the intensity of the opposition the disciples are, are about to experience you know, is going to be very great, and they need to be prepared for it. Uh, um, and they could stumble. They could fall away. They could turn, turn from Him. Now, we know they all did turn immediately, you know, at his crucifixion. When he's arrested, they all, they all scatter. Um, eventually, they obviously come back. The immediate reaction is fear, and, and they run away. 
And so Jesus is warning them about this in advance. Don't be surprised of what's going to happen. Uh, this, this is natural. This is normal. Um, verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. <clears throat> We've already seen that in John chapter 9. Remember the man born blind? Uh, he got put out of the synagogue because he testified about Jesus, what he did, and so forth. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. If they will do such things because they have not known, they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. So he says the first source of opposition for these disciples will be from the Jews themselves. They will put you out of the synagogue. Jesus himself had been the object of attack as long as he was with them. Many times we've seen that. And the disciples had been spared mostly. The attack came against Jesus, not so much against them. But this is going to change. And we see that in the book of Acts. You know, we see the hostility, the arrest of Peter, John, the arrest of the disciples, the apostles, so forth. Stephen. Instead of uh, the, the hostility that would soon erupt against them would be of a religious nature. Instead of seeing all their families Friends and fellow countrymen in the synagogue responded to Jesus as the Messiah. The believers themselves would be cast out by their fellow Jews. Yet their Jewish persecutors would justify their actions as a religious duty. I mean, we think about you know, the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus who, who persecuted Christians to the death, Stephen to the death, on the assumption that they are blasphemers of God when they worship Jesus, you know. He assumes he's on the right side. He's on God's side. He's doing God a favor. Um, but the real cause was that Saul didn't know the Father. People don't know God truly, even though they think they do. And so, you know, this is what we have. You know, we have, uh, especially where, you know, maybe Islam is in control of countries and so forth. They persecute Christians. They maybe kill Christians. But they do it because they believe they are doing God a favor. They're on the right side. You know, they, they're, they're religious but lost, extremely religious but lost. And uh, so they just don't, as he says here, don't be surprised at that, that these, these Jews, this, you know, the, the people to whom Christ came, he came to his own, but... As, as John said at the beginning, his own did not receive him, received him not. So this is, this is what you know, we discover uh, over, over, over the history of the church is that oftentimes persecution comes from pagans or from non-Christian religions. But sometimes it comes from professing Christians. It comes from, <laughs> you know... Uh, I mean, it can go both ways, but the Catholics killed a lot of Christians. I mean, the Catholics burned a lot of Christians. I mean, Protestants burned a lot of, <laughs> killed a lot of Catholics too, but I'm just saying, you know, uh, in England, we think of the example of, you know, Bloody Mary, or Mary who took the throne after the death of her, of her Protestant brother, Edward VI, uh, she brought the church back into Roman Catholicism and they burned at the stake many of the Protestants, many true believers, many genuine believers.
believers who we believe were genuine believers, but she thought she was getting rid of heretics. Uh, even Protestants have done this, drowning Anabaptists. Do you remember the Anabaptist who uh, would not accept infant baptism in the uh, 15th, uh, 16th century, 17th century? Uh, many Protestants, many reformers uh, drowned them because they said, "You want to be <laughs> you want to be immersed? We're going to immerse you. You know, we're going to we're going to." And they drowned them, you know. So, uh, so you can the, this you can get unbelieving persecution from religious people, from non-religious people, and so he's just warning them here: don't be surprised at any of this. Verse four, here the first part: I have told you this, so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. As in verse one, the reason why Jesus is so explicit on these matters is so that when the persecution does break out, the disciples will not be taken by surprise and be tempted toward apostasy. Rather, they will remember what Jesus said and their faith will be strengthened because they'll be assured that what is happening to them is not outside either his knowledge or his control. So we got to remember that too, you know. I mean, no one wants to be persecuted and I haven't really faced any in my life, you know, I've been, I lived at a time when Christianity was generally accepted and so forth. I haven't really faced any, but, you know, we may, we may face more in the future, but just we just have to remember <laughs> Christ warned us about this, and this is part of his plan, his program. It's, it's not outside his knowledge or his control. Uh, we just have to respond the appropriate way. Oh yeah, I mean we're all tested. I mean Christians are are tested. Uh, you know, there can be opposition. Is that what you mean right now? And yes, it's, um, with um, with the difference of the generations of uh, the culture shift. Yeah. With things being more accepting now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, things are more protected. Yeah. And um, you know, we have trainings now on how to conduct ourselves about uh, certain rights. Yeah. Uh, right now, we're going through trainers. They call it soldiers. Um, there are certain things that you cannot say if someone feels that their gender, um, that they identify themselves as, if you mean that they wasn't born that way. We. We have to respect that or you can be fired. Yeah. Yeah, Eula was asking about, aren't we? I just said I haven't really faced any persecution or that kind of stuff myself, but she was asking, aren't we facing that right now? And she was giving examples in the workplace. <clears throat> and yeah, I just meant that, you know, in my lifetime, I just haven't really faced that. I worked in a Christian organization. You know, I mean, naturally, when you witness to people, they can get mad and all that, but I haven't really lost my job or my means or, you know, it's not been that. And, uh, and so I, just, I was just saying, yeah, I think more of this may be coming, you know, and more of it may be coming. It will become more unacceptable to be a Christian. 
And yeah, you're right. You could lose your job uh, if you say certain things, and people have, you know, speaking up and so forth. So we shouldn't be surprised that this is coming because, as you said, the culture is changing, the norms are changing. You know, as I say, I grew up and we had the Ten Commandments on the wall. <laughs> we read the Bible every day. So there wasn't any real any opposition, you know, in the sense of, uh, to Christianity, there was no, or Judaism, there was no opposition. So you're right, yeah. We're going to face more of it, but, you know, fortunately right now, Christians aren't being put in prison, particularly in our country, you know, like they are in some places, you know, and beheaded and things like that. And hopefully that'll never happen here, but you're right. Yeah, you're right. This is, this means more now than it did 50 years ago, you know, that's true. And yeah, that's, that's very, very true. Well, let's look at number four here, the work of the Holy Spirit, 16, 4b through 15. The need for the Holy Spirit. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I have said these things. But truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you but I will go and I will send him to you. Say so Jesus had not earlier spelled out the full dangers of persecution because he was still with them and could largely protect them by absorbing all the opposition himself and thus deflecting it from them. Now Jesus discusses the Holy Spirit who would take his place when he departed. This subject had been introduced early in the evening. Remember John 14, John 15, 26. It's now elaborated. The previous announcements by Jesus regarding his departure had raised the question as to where he was going, but had not been pursued, and now they were too confused and discouraged to press it further. So they had need for spiritual encouragement. If they were going to witness for Christ and be witnesses, his authorized representatives, as he talked about back in 1527, when Jesus said, it is, good for, it is for your good, that is, for your advantage, that I am going away, his disciples probably found the idea difficult to accept. They would have preferred that Jesus remain with them. Yet Jesus was looking beyond the immediate sorrow of separation to the ultimate accomplishment of his program. He must die and be resurrected in order to accomplish redemption. Only then could he, in conjunction with the Father, send the Spirit to empower them as witnesses to announce the finished work of Christ. As I mentioned previously in discussing 14, 16 through 17, this is what I call that apostolic anointing. That is, that the Holy Spirit did something special for the apostles for their upcoming task of establishing the New Testament church. You know, He will cause you to remember what I have said to you. He will show you, well, we'll get to that here in a moment. Where he's, and I read that verse already, John 16, where he will show you things to come and all that. Um, and I said this anointing that I keep talking about is similar to this theocratic anointing we talked about in the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua and the kings and so forth, David and so forth, that David had. So this was a, spe a special empowerment, an anointment, a filling to do the task that God had them to do. And this is something that the apostles will have that will enable them to do these amazing things that they will do. 
Well, Jesus explains that, the ministry of the Holy Spirit here, but now he explains it toward the world, 16, 8 through 11. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Remember, this is where most translations say, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So we're talking about that word that's often translated conviction. The NIV is saying, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. The righteousness, judgment, about sin. He says, first of all, about sin. He'll prove them wrong about sin because people do not believe in me. He'll prove them wrong about righteousness because I'm going to the Father. Prove them where you can where you will see me no longer, and he'll prove them wrong about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I'll say here, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he was you know, primarily the one convicting individuals through his ministry. With him leaving, the Spirit would now come to the disciples at Pentecost and would use them to perform his ministry toward the world. Through the disciples, as they preached the gospel, the world, the Spirit would prove the world to be wrong, ESV, convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit uses the Word of God directly or mediated by other believers, that is, directly when people read the Word, or mediated by other believers, as we may tell them what the Word says, to convince or prove to sinners their guilt, their need of righteousness, and the reality of God's judgment. Let's look at that. First, this convicting ministry of the Spirit convinces people not so much of their individual acts of sin, but their state of sinfulness. So he will convict, he will, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin. So we're talking primarily here um, about not so much individual acts, though that's not excluded but about their state of sinfulness. The Spirit does this by highlighting their unbelief because people do not believe in me. So he'll prove them wrong about sin and the proof of that, the highlight of that is they don't believe in me. What greater sin is there? Second, the Spirit convinces people of their lack of righteousness. That is, they become aware of God's holiness and their need of true holiness found in the atoning work of Christ. Both of these are proved by the return of Christ to the Father because I am going to the Father, he says. He returns to the Father because His atonement was acceptable to the Father, fulfilling His mission to make righteousness available to the world. So He convinces the world about righteousness, you know, because He's going to complete the atonement and... He's going to go to the Father and righteousness is provided, you know, in the salvation message. Third, the Spirit convinces people of their liability to judgment for sin. This is proved by the defeat of Satan because the prince of this world now stands condemned. If the cross sealed the judgment of Satan, which it did, the greatest and most powerful sinner, how much more certain is the doom of every other sinner apart from Christ? So uh, the Spirit is going to convince people about uh, judgment and the, and, and the supreme 
truth of that their judgment is coming is because the prince of the world is judged. And if he's judged, what happens to the rest of us who are, with, who are outside of Christ? So this is what we call the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And this convicting work of the Holy Spirit uh, does not always result in salvation. So people can be convicted of these things and still reject Christ. So it takes more than the convicting work to bring somebody to salvation. But that's essential, that's preparatory, that they are convicted and see themselves as sinners. But sometimes people are convicted... They see themselves as sinners, but then they turn away. They walk away. And maybe it happened to you. Maybe it happened to many of us. We may have been confronted with the gospel. We were convicted of our sinfulness, but we, uh, not, no, not right now. You know, we may have turned away. We didn't automatically turn to Christ. So, so conviction doesn't always result in salvation, but ultimately it, it's necessary first to be convicted of one's sin, to be shown you're a sinner to be shown the truth, these truths, understand these truths, and then the work of the Spirit to bring us to Christ. So now we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the disciples, 16, 12 through 15. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. In relation to the disciples, the Spirit would guide them into all the truth that they were presently unable to receive. These men would be Christ's authorized interpreters, and the Scripture, the Spirit would operate within them and bring remembrance of Christ's words and deeds and the meaning of them. 1426. He would also reveal prophetic truths to them, as he says here. He will show you what is yet to come. All of these truths that, that are revealed here are embodied in the New Testament. So what, the, what Christ is promising the disciples is what was written down in the New Testament and received by the church on the authority of the apostles. I mean, that's the major reason if, when the early church was looking to decide what is Scripture, they were looking for works that were what they called apostolic. They were written by an apostle or some associate of an apostle, like Mark as an associate of the apostles, and that kind of thing. James as an associate of the apostle. Or, of course, he might have been an apostle in some sense. There's some debate about that. Verse 14, He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And that belongs to the Father, and, and all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me and he will make known to you. Another function of the Spirit would be to glorify the absent Christ. The Spirit does this by making known what he will receive from Jesus. All the revelation that has been given by Jesus in his earthly ministry will be filled out and more fully explained by the Spirit, through the ministry of the apostles. So, you know, he makes it pretty clear here. The Spirit will glorify me. He doesn't say, I will glorify the Spirit, right? He will glorify me. 
Um, all that belongs to the Father, you know, is mine. This is what I've said, the Spirit will see from me and He'll make known to you. So, you know, there is the Trinity. And we said there are these functions in the Trinity. Ontologically, they're all equal, equal power, equal. Uh, they have all the attributes of God. They, all, they deserve all glory and praise and honor and so forth. But they function differently. The Father plans and programs. He sends the Son to, and, and the Holy Spirit is you know, sent to, to accomplish all this in the lives of people. And so I just say that because sometimes we hear, we hear criticism uh, about different branches of Christianity or present-day Christians that we don't uh, honor the Spirit sufficiently. Um, and so, uh, you know, Jesus will say, he'll not speak of himself and so forth. Uh, the point here is he, his, 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 what he is doing is making known the Son. His purpose is to glorify the Son. Um, if Christ is given the pro proper emphasis, then the Spirit's basic ministry among believers is being responded to. Um, so any movement supposedly led by the Spirit, which focuses, most, which focuses most of its interest on the phenomenon of the Spirit, I think is contrary to what Jesus is saying here. The Spirit comes to present the work of Christ, to emphasize the work of Christ, to glorify the Son. The Holy Spirit is honored when Christ is glorified in our lives. That seems to be the way the Trinity functions. Then we see the coming separation, 16, 16 through 24. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me, you, you will see me. Jesus now brings the discussion back to the immediate situation. In just a few hours, a little while, the storm would break. They would not be able to see him with their physical eyes because he'd be killed and placed in the grave. And then after a little while, they would see him again because he would be raised from the dead. Verse 17, at this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you'll see me, you'll see me. And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? So I say here, the disciples still have no category to allow them to make sense of a Messiah who would die rise from the dead, and abandon his people in favor of another advocate. This just doesn't fit the Old Testament idea. The Messiah will come, set up his kingdom, and reign. You know, that, they still can't figure this out. The disciples are perplexed by the double use of a little while. Jesus repeats his comments while preparing to address their confusion. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because 
of her joy that a child is born of the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So the coming separation would bring great sorrow to his followers. The unbelieving world would rejoice at the accomplishment of his purpose regarding Jesus. While the disciples would have a brief interval of grief, but their grief would not merely be replaced by joy at the resurrection. But their grief would not merely be replaced by joy at the resurrection. The grief itself would be turned into joy as they came to understand the full significance of Christ's death. So yeah, they're going to grieve, but this is going to be a greater joy because they're going to understand, oh, this, there was a purpose in all this. This wasn't a disaster, <laughs> you know. This wasn't a failure, you know. Uh, Jesus, and of course, uses this analogy of the woman to illustrate how grief can turn to joy. In that day, he says, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. When once the tragic hour would be over in that day, there would be some reluctant, some resultant privileges for his followers. They would have no further need to ask questions about this puzzling prospect of his death. Its purpose would be clear to them and their questions would be resolved. The questioning of ignorance would be replaced by definite prayer to the Father on the merits of the name of the divine Son. And so by faith in Him, believers become sharers of Christ's life. And He grants to us, He grants to the disciples, the use of His name. We, we often, we usually pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name because of what He said here, because uh, we have this functional trinity. We can ask the Father directly. We can ask any member of the trinity. But the normal function is to pray to the Father through the authority of the Son, because the Son has given us access. We have access uh, into the grace in which we stand, Paul says, through the work of the Son, and we pray in, in the power of the Spirit. Then finally here, 15, uh, 25 through 33, despair before victory. Because the emphasis upon the dark days ahead could prove too depressing to the anxious disciple, our Lord encouraged their faith by lifting their thoughts to the time of victory after Calvary. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I no longer use the kind of language, that, this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. Jesus explained that when the victory of the cross had been won, there would be no further need for obscure sayings. The use of parables and other figures and the employment of enigmatic statements would be replaced after the resurrection by the plain teaching of Jesus during a 40-day ministry. Remember, we find that after the resurrection, he's there with them for 40 days. Then there's the ascension, and 10 days later, the Feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. And after, so he says, uh, you know, there'd be this 40-day ministry, then the Spirit, of course, would, would come and give and grant them this direct understanding of spiritual truth. And you can see that. The way the disciples act in the Gospels and the way they act in the book of Acts is, is just quite a difference there, a huge difference, as he predicts here. And that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. 
I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. In the future, disciples would not need to ask Jesus to make a request to the Father for them, for they were sure of the Father's love for them and the availability of direct access to Him. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now you can see that you that now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied? I'll talk about what, what's, what is that, what is Jesus saying there? Jesus had said that the time of no longer speaking figuratively is really after the cross, not now. See, they say... Uh, now you're speaking clearly. Oh, we got it. We've got it. <laughs> but the disciples mistakenly think that the time has already come. Now you're speaking clearly without fear. But in truth, the disciples do still not fully understand what Jesus had been setting forth about the cross and all of its applications. And I, many people think his question here, do you now believe, has, is somewhat said somewhat skeptically and kind of a mild rebuke here because, you know, if they really understood everything he was saying, you wouldn't think they would scatter immediately, <laughs> run for their lives when the crucifixion happens. But they're just terrified and they take off. So, you know, they probably don't really understand as well as they think they're saying. Verse 32, a time is coming and in fact has now come, has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. And you will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. The disciples' persistent lack of understanding will become transparent when they fail to stand by Jesus at His arrest. We'll see that. Verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So I say even though the disciples will temporarily defect, Jesus looks upon their collapse to their restoration and ends the upper room discourse with encouragement here. The victory of Christ was certain and thus the disciples would have spiritual peace even in the tribulation, even in the time coming. I mean, Jesus has conquered the world in the same way he defeated the prince of the world the world's going to continue its tax, attacks, but, you know, I mean, Jesus has, uh, even though Jesus has defeated the world in a sense and defeated Satan, the world is going to continue its attacks and does continue its attacks. But the point is, you know, you and I cannot really be harmed by this evil. Uh, we, we're, sh we're sharing in the victory. We, we're sharing in the victory that Christ has won. Um, and that he will win on the cross. And so he's trying to tell them here, uh, you know, you can have peace, as we talked about this peace of God, even though we have this difficulty and trouble, you'll have trouble, but we know Jesus has, has made possible the final victory. We know ultimately that uh, Satan will be bound, Christ will establish His kingdom. We know who's going to win. We're on the winning side. And so we can be sort of calm and collected. I remember a story, I remember hearing a preacher preach when I was in college. 
God, his name. Oh, David. He pastored in. Um, he pastored in in Warren, Michigan. I've forgotten his last name now. Forgive me. But uh, he came down to Tennessee to preach in chapel, and he was telling this story about. He's a big University of Michigan fan, and so he he. I guess what was happening was. They didn't have tape recorders back then. They must have been rebroadcasting the Michigan game, you know, Michigan game. And he was a big fan, you know, get all excited. And so he's watching the game, and Michigan's behind, you know. And his wife is looking at him like, and he's just calm, he's just collected. You know, and usually he would be agitated. Michigan's behind, here we are in the fourth quarter. And he's just so calm and all this. And, you know, he was just saying, well, the reason why, because... I already knew what the score was, you know. <laughs> I, I, I had the final outcome. I knew Michigan was coming back and we were going to win this game, you know. <laughs> and that's us, right? We, we know what the outcome is going to be, and that's a wonderful source of contentment and peace. All right, we've gone over here. Let's stop for tonight. And Lord willing, we will pick up chapter 17 uh, next week and make our way to the end here.